You're listening to The Omni Show. Get to know the people and stories behind the Omni Group's award-winning productivity apps for Mac and iOS. Music! I'm your host, Brent Simmons. This is our special holiday episode, and we got you a gift. In the studio with me today is Tim Wood, CTO of the Omni Group. Tim is also one of the founders of the Omni Group. Say hello, Tim. Hello, Tim. So, Tim, what actually do you do here? Uh, Well, I am the CTO, which means I try to head up all the engineering efforts that are going on for our Mac and iOS products. I hear that Omni Group is 100% engineers, nothing else. Well, is that true? No, not not really. Uh, we have a large department of support people, uh, you know, documentation, all sorts of other jobs in the company that are super important to keeping the products going and our customers supported. About how many engineers do we have? Depending upon if you count me and Ken, I think about you know, a little over a dozen. Oh, okay. So that's uh, roughly three people-ish per app. That's... That's some pretty efficient engineering we've got going on here. Yeah, how, it, how do we manage that? Well, it doesn't divide up quite that evenly. Some products have more engineers than others, but... I assume that changes over time, too, of course. Sure, yeah. 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 A lot of it is we have really great people working here. We have frameworks that we have built up over decades now that we're able to leverage and take advantage of. So the various apps then obviously must share a certain amount of code. What are some of those kinds of things? Well, there's everything from our preferences, inspectors, basic things like XML parsing and parsing dates and just a wide gamut of utilities that apps tend to need. And As I recall, because I used to do some engineering here, yeah. <laughs> I dimly remember, there are even some larger things. For instance, the, the outline view used in Omni Outliner is used also in OmniPlan. Correct. And uh, is it used in Graphle at all? It is not. Uh, okay. It used to be used in OmniFocus, but uh, now it's just planned in Outliner. Right. So that's a bit bigger even than a utility, right? That outline view is. That is a. That controllers. That's, that's a, a large of chunk of code, yes. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. But particularly for Omni Outliner, we have a motto of any piece of your app that is just core to it, you need to be able to fix bugs in it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Apple has an outline view, and we do use that in a variety of places, but the outline view and outliner is central to the app, and we need to be able to customize it and fix every little detail. Mm. So this is a trade-off, of course, right? Of you, course. you don't have the, if you just used NS outline view from Apple, you'd have that quick thing, hey, we've got an outline view. Yeah, didn't totally. have to write it. Yeah, Not exactly. responsible for it either. But if you want to be able to customize and fix every single part of it, that's... That's a whole lot of yeah, work. Yeah, you're taking on the responsibility, but you, you, know, you get all the, the benefits of that as well. Mm-hmm. So how is the decision made, aside from that, because that's an obvious case, if it's core to the app, it has to be in a framework, has to be written by us. How is the decision made for other pieces of code, whether they end up in frameworks or app-specific? It varies. I mean, I think there's some pieces that it's, it's fairly obvious that it's going to be reused, but it's really easy to jump the gun there and... Mm-hmm. stick something in a framework and it never gets reused. So we try to write things within the context of one application, not worry too much about making it completely general, and then if the need arises, move it out to a framework and, and make it a little more configurable. Mm-hmm. So in general, that's been a win. I do look to some parts where I'm like, 
I see that there's a lot of configuration options, for instance, with the inspector framework. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah. Because they are kind of different in each app. Yeah, the inspector framework, some of that is, you know, over the years, tastes have changed on how inspectors should work. You know, they should be floating panels. They should be embedded. They should have tabs. They should stack up the different slices. And so over time, that framework has evolved to handle all those different tastes and how interfaces should be laid out and it can end up where you know one of our apps has moved forward with adopting a new look and another one hasn't yet and particularly in that framework i think we've got some work to do to clean out old ways of doing things mm. but as always that work has to be done carefully because any any time you touch a framework that every app yes exactly use yeah, yeah there's always a chance for a regression right so how do you balance that kind of you know we need to move forward we need to ship with maintaining this kind of code? Because, you know, say someone does that work, that doesn't necessarily make us money directly. Yeah, it doesn't make us money directly, but it does mean that we have less friction going forward. Mm-hmm. So we try to, you know, as a product approaches a release, it goes off on a branch and is a little more isolated from destabilizing changes. So uh, the branch, it branches all the frameworks that it uses at the same time. Correct, I yeah. see, Okay. And then often after a major release is when we go back and say, okay, we, you know, during the course of the major release, we lugged these bugs of things, you know, technical debt, things mm-hmm. that we wish we could have fixed in the frameworks, you know, that made it harder to get our work done. But, you know, we don't want to go breaking working code without having the time to find and fix as many regressions as possible. Right. So after our major release, there's often a period where we're doing some cleanup mm-hmm. of things that can use it. Does anyone know the frameworks as well as you do? Uh, probably can. Can, yeah. <laughs> all right. And uh, certainly other people know parts of the frameworks better than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, like the syncing engine for OmniFocus was something that I did the first version of it a decade or more ago. I don't even remember. Mm-hmm. But now Tim Michael and Jim Correa, I think, know that better than I do. Oh, okay. And that particular bit of code is OmniFocus only, right? Correct. Yeah, because right. everything else is document-based, and that's right. individual item-based, I guess, right? So in the original version, was that also done over WebDAV uh, with, like, little files and yeah. baselining and stuff? Uh, at the time, I don't remember. Let's see. It was called iDisk, I think, at the time. Mm-hmm. Apple had a WebDAV service that came with your iDisk or MobileMe or whatever it was right. called at the time which made it really easy for users to get set up with that. Over the years, that has gone away, and so it's been more challenging for users to get a web dev server set up, which is part of the reason that we have our sync service. Oh, okay. At the time, that seemed like the, the smart way to go. Everyone has a free web dev server, why not? Yeah, exactly. Why not use yeah. That, huh? I always find this interesting because I've done a fair amount of syncing work on things in the past, and the way I've always done it, there's some... API up in the cloud that's connected to a SQL database of some kind. And never in a million years would I have considered doing what you guys did. <laughs> and yet, somehow you made it work. Is there some kind of locking or something you can do with a web dev thing? Because I imagine different clients writing to the same, essentially, web, database in the, in the cloud. What the, the, the web dev specification does have locking and a, a wide variety of other things that are sparsely implemented or are not implemented at all. Great. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So our approach has been to use the bare minimum of WebDAV, just being able to put get delete files 
rename stuff mm. and build a system that doesn't depend upon the full breadth of the web dev spec because it, I don't even know that Apache implements everything. And mm. certainly iDisk at the time didn't implement all of web dev. Okay. Well, I mean, web dev is fairly new. It's only been around 20 years or so. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we couldn't expect just, it. Just to, a baby. Yeah. Right. <laughs> It's amazing though. I, I, I still just, uh, I'm still just amazed that that works. <laughs> and not only that, it works so well, but it's perfect because people can set up their own web dev system and have their own syncing. Some people absolutely require that apparently. So these days companies, you know, they can set up a web dev server internally or mm-hmm. a lot of NAS devices that people have in their homes have a built in web dev server. Oh, okay. You read every commit message. Um, to varying levels of uh, detail. I mean, I certainly scan. It's not always a close I, reading. Yeah. yeah, no, I scan through them all and look through things that I know are likely to be problem areas in more detail. And mm-hmm. yeah, I uh, and this goes back to frameworks too. When I was in, in engineering, I would do something and occasionally get an email from you saying, yeah. "Hey, you know, <laughs> this is already in a framework." Yeah, I'm like, "Oh, really?" <laughs> Of course, I think to myself, I could have spent a whole lot of time looking through the frameworks to discover that somewhere, or I could have just written it. So I just just wrote it. Yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, if you're looking for an array category method, it's mm-hmm. easy to go find that. You know where to look. Sure, right. It'll be um, one of two yeah. places, maybe. Yeah. But there, there definitely are utilities that are more difficult to track down. I and mean, that's one thing where I can spot, oh, hey, I see you're trying to accomplish some task. And I know that there's already a bit of work over here that yeah, you can right. take advantage of. Yeah. So a big part of your job is just that kind of being a resource, being an educational person, a teacher. Yeah, exactly. Tool. Yeah. yeah, right. Remember another email I got from you once? I, I thought oh. I knew. <laughs> I thought I knew Foundation super well, and then one day I implemented NS counted set, not knowing that NS counted set <laughs> existed. I was just blown away. NS counted set. I'd never, ever, ever run across. Yeah, that. there's a few things out in the frameworks that. You don't use very often, but yeah, they're nice to have. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. So we uh, had a bit of excitement. I think it was just as we're recording, it was just yesterday. As you're listening to it, it was two months ago because we're recording in October. But we hit commit number 320,000 in our subversion repository. And that commit was snagged by Tim Michael. Of course it was because he has a thing about that. Yeah, we suspect he has a script or something that um, it's a little suspicious. Yeah, right. That's just weird. I mean, he was even—I think he was homesick even. And he yeah. still managed to do it. <laughs> I, I don't know that guy. He didn't get a few uh, people pinging him from the office to let him know it was coming up. Oh, sure, right. Of course, we all get very excited for him. <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't let that happen again. Well, we probably will because we'll have no choice. <laughs> Tim will outfox us one way or the other. So that 320,000 commits in a subversion repository, that's going back a few years. Yeah, it goes back before subversion was a thing. Our repository was imported from an ancient CVS repository from our consulting days, you know, some 25-ish years ago. Hmm. Now, I've heard it said that Omni single-handedly saved the world from the Y2K disaster. Is, is that true? Sure. Yeah, why not? <laughs> What did we do? Well, one of the projects we worked on back in the consulting days was going through 
next step uh, was owned by Apple at this point and just, you know, looking through the source for potential Y2K issues. So a lot of reading source and trying to reason about whether something was a problem or not. In the end, was there much that had to be changed? I, I don't think there was much at all. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Did NS date exist? NS calendar date, maybe? Uh, uh, there certainly was a, yeah, it was NS date at that point and okay. NS calendar, NS calendar date as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is now gone. That's good. Smartly though. Yeah, yeah. that's fine. Right. Yeah. <laughs> We're okay with that. Yeah. So our Macs didn't blow up when the year 2000 hit. So I don't remember sure. any real problems of note. With Everybody our... listening, you have Omni to thank for that. If you were a Mac user at the time. <laughs> So Subversion, 320,000 commits, previously in CVS. Do we have any plans or thoughts about moving to Git? Because that is so much the standard these days. Yeah, we we occasionally look at it, and you know we've been looking at it again. One of the issues we have is just the magnitude of our repository has been a problem in the past. You know, mm-hmm. Both the number of files, the uh, large binary files. And, and we our, have everything, essentially. And right now, one. it's all one every big repository. App, every yeah. framework. Right. right. So part of that, you know, we're thinking about you know, how can we split it up into smaller repositories? Do we want to preserve history going back 25 years? Um, you know, there's a whole laundry list of what things we need to consider, what things will change, you know, what things will get better. Yeah, sure. Certainly there will be a ton of benefit by, by doing it. But. And there's the confusion, I suppose, of sub-modules, and everybody would have to learn all this new stuff. Yeah. If we went down that there's, route. Submodules and subtrees and yeah, the, yeah, yeah. I don't even know. I don't know. Tim Eichel knows which ones we're <laughs> wanting to use. <laughs> All commits will be by Tim Eichel because he'll be the only one who understands. Well, the you system. know, you know, there will be no round numbered commits then. So, oh, that's right. It's all, um, it's all those weird identifiers. Right? Yeah, boy, you'd think Tim would be against this. I, then, I, right? I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> so you have to deal with. Uh, Infrastructure, build servers, that kind of thing. Yeah, I tend to do most of the uh, maintenance of our general build scripts. Um, there's a whole bunch of uh, you know other stuff that goes on for um, pushing release, you know, signing releases uh, for test flight and Mac App Store, and thankfully other people mostly can handle that. Um, but we have. Um, a section in our server room, which is full of Mac pros that just sit there and do our builds. And mm-hmm. uh, so I tend to keep those, uh, keep those running and on the versions of the OS that we need. And our, I think our build automation stuff predates certainly Xcode bots, whatever they're Xcode server. Oh, right, bot, sure, yeah. Um, a thing I haven't used. But. Predates Jenkins and mm-hmm. all that. So again, it's another one of these things where it, you know, it does what we need. It isn't as general as it, could be, but um, it works. And we have uh, what's it called Omni Auto Build, which is a little app that monitors these and right. yells at us when things don't build. Right. And, yeah. Turns red. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm in marketing, I never launch that app <laughs> because it can't possibly be my fault. No. Nope. <laughs> but in the past, it certainly has been any number of times. Remember, I was doing arc conversions on some frameworks used by Omni Outliner. And uh, went through and did that, and uh, I was quite happy with it and broke the Omni Outliner iOS build. And I think that was because while I did the conversions for the Mac versions of the frameworks, right. I didn't 
set the right stuff right. for the iOS versions because it didn't occur to me. Or yeah, and, and Xcode's not super helpful about yeah. noticing that you're converting a file to ARC, but that file is part of multiple targets. And mm, right, yeah, yeah. So I definitely broke those builds. Uh, anyway, that's my disgraceful past. Now I'm in marketing. <laughs> So we have a bunch of listener questions. You know, normally in the show at this point, I'd say, what'd you do before Omni? How'd you get here? Answer Craigslist ad or whatever, but you were born here. So you're a founder. You started it because you wanted to do a company with your friends, essentially, right? Yeah. 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 Right. And then look what happened. All this. Terrible. Yeah. <laughs> listener questions, though. So we have Daniel Jalkut, and he's curious about your involvement with the Swift evolution process. He wonders if you're still actively involved and how you feel about the direction Swift is heading in? Well, I had one Swift proposal that I picked up just as a, I think it was marked as a beginner bug in their database and uh, sort of shepherded it through. It was a very small change and it involved a lot of discussion, which I think is, is good, mm-hmm. uh, but it was really quite a bit of effort. So, you know, my hat is off to the people that shepherd larger proposals through the evolution process. Everybody has opinions. Everything needs discussion. Yeah, yeah. yeah, sure. So these days, my contributions are more in finding edge cases that confuse or crash the compiler, mm. which, for better or worse, I tend to You're good have at. some facility at, <laughs> at doing that. Are these in a certain area? Mostly they've been in OmniJS, our JavaScript automation framework for our Mac and iOS apps, or... Um, Recently in OmniFocus for the web, mm-hmm. the backend server for that. Both of those end up using a fair bit of the generic support in Swift and all sorts of protocols and okay. various arrangements that eventually produce interesting results. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think about um, the direction of Swift in general? Are you, are you pretty happy with the language? you like where it's going? Yeah, in general, I'm pretty happy with it. You know, it's like any tool. It's not perfect for every use. Mm. You know, we still have a large code base of Objective-C and you know, I'm always looking at new languages a little, you know, looking aside at them thinking, eh, uh-huh. how's that going over there? But Last time I interviewed you for a podcast, which I have done before, me and Chris yeah. Parrish interviewed you for the record. That was some years ago. And uh, I think Go was interesting you at the time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I did a little bit with that and we have a little bit of Production Go code running all our um, push service for OmniFocus is written in Go and is working just fine. Mm. Written by Tim Eckel. Mm-hmm. So now you're looking at Kotlin, Rust? Rust, I think, is. Yeah. It has a lot of things that are in the same spirit as Swift, but even more so. Mm. Really, my looking at it is not super in depth at this point because, you know, I have plenty to do, really. Right, right, <laughs> of course. Daniel Jalkett also wonders, since we're moving into a Swift world and we're doing less and less of Objective-C, well, you're a person who's been writing Objective-C longer than most Objective-C developers, yeah. it's fair to say. Is it just a tool that's going away, or do you feel some emotion about kind of slowly saying goodbye to this language that you've done so much in and that has served you so well? Um, I'm not super sentimental about it, no. Yeah. I think it's more uh, thinking about, uh, you know, how are we going to move forward if we want to move more code over to Swift or should we even, you know, code that works is, you know, there's no given reason that it has to be moved to a new language. Um, Mm, Sure. 
but there, I mean, there are sort of external realities, uh, you know, particularly for something like OmniFocus for the web, where hosting the backend service would be a lot simpler if there were no Objective-C. So mm. I mean, maybe that's worth considering, but that's a gigantic effort to undertake. Yeah, yeah for sure. So switching gears to something truly important, <laughs> Rose Orchard asks, what's your favorite lunch day at work? Is it pancakes? Because today we have pancakes. Well, it's, it's definitely Wednesday, which is usually breakfast for lunch. But I, I think, you know, the pancakes are good. But I, I think the, the egg sandwiches are probably my favorite. Mm, egg sandwiches but are the, good. You know, there's, there's a lot of great, great meals here. And it's kind of hard to choose. Yesterday, I, was, I myself was very happy with the meatloaf and mashed potatoes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was, yeah. That was nice. Pancakes are my favorite day. Egg sandwiches are super good, though. Thomas Kern asks, how is Omni Group competing for developer talent against larger companies in the Seattle area? Right. I don't think we're directly competing. There's really a different experience that people have if they come work at a smaller company like the Omni Group than they're going to have if they work at you know Facebook or Google or Amazon or Adobe or any of the other numbers. All of which we have here. Facebook's yeah, all, across the street and next door. They're all within walking distance. Yeah. Well, Adobe's a little further. Hmm. A long walk. Yeah. You know, so to some extent, we uh, it depends upon the kind of experience that the individuals want to have, right? And, you know, that's up to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think one thing that is definitely changing is that Seattle is becoming a much more expensive place to live mm-hmm. than it was, you know, even five or 10 years ago. Right. Not much we can do about that. Yeah, no. I mean, unless we <laughs> hypothetically move out outside of Seattle. No, don't do it. Yeah, there's trade-offs there. Yeah. <laughs> so Chris Parrish asks, will the Sounders make it to the Cup this year? Now, uh, of course, listeners, you're listening in December. It's only October 17th as we're recording. So this is all pure speculation. Yeah, three years in a row. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. What do you think? They can do it? I think we'll know in December. <laughs> <laughs> Chris also asks uh, about the time you spent making the TIFO displays with the Sounders supporters group. Uh, I don't know much about that. Tell me about that. It's the Emerald City supporters. Yeah. Yeah. Emerald City supporters is a independent supporters group of volunteers. And then uh, we do everything from the gigantic display, you know, painted displays that you'll see in the end of the stadium to the you know drums and flags throughout the match. Mm-hmm. And we're we're down there 90 minutes of jumping up and down, singing our hearts out, <laughs> uh, waving giant flags. Cool. Do you think that this helps pump up the players, that the home team? And Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 No, that's cool. We say that we sing for them and they fight for us. And, mm-hmm. um, nice. When did you get into soccer? Well, it started with my kids starting to play soccer, really. Mm, okay. uh, they played you know, rec soccer locally, and we started occasionally going to Sounders games because mm-hmm. you know, they were kind of interested. And, right. and then there are several people in the office here who are, were in ECS, Emerald City Supporters, before me, and so I kind of got, got a little recruited. taste from them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. So we're clearly going in random order with questions here. Justin Oaks asks, what is the role of a CTO and a company where the entire business is technology? Well, it, you know, it turns out there's quite a bit of our business that is not developers. There's a large group of support people that talk to, you know, people on the phones and Twitter and email. Um, and, you know, they're super friendly and knowledgeable and help keep our customers supported. There's people that write documentation and 
of course, there's all the user experience uh, design and people in marketing. Yay, me. Yay. <laughs> Uh, testers, Test, huge, no, yeah. yeah, huge, right? Yeah. Front office folks, yeah, people who make our fabulous lunches. Yes, turns out there's a lot. Yeah. So, last question: Craig Hockenberry asks about your pottery and how that fits into your life. Uh, well, let's see. I think about 18 or 19 years ago it was now that my wife and I started taking pottery classes down at uh, Seward Park Art Studio at the south end of Lake Washington. Mm-hmm. The big one. Yeah. The big one, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, this was before we had kids, so it was easy to go out on weekday nights and oh, sure. do yeah. some pottery. Mm-hmm. But, you know, since then, it's a little harder, or certainly when the kids were younger, it was harder to get out. So, oh, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, we turned our garage into a pottery studio. Cool. And it's, you know, it's super nice to have something where you're not, you know, you're a little more freeform. You're a little more open to whatever accidents happen mm-hmm. to happen. And it's tactile and more experimentary and just different from what happens at the day job. Yeah. Right. A lot different from looking at pixels on the screen. Yeah. yeah. So do you uh, give your stuff away? Are you selling your stuff? Or? Right now it's, it's mostly, I either make stuff knowing where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, yeah, it does pile up in the garage. Like, what oh, am right. I going to do with this? <laughs> yeah, so I don't limit. You'd have to buy a new garage or something. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> so a couple of years ago, uh, I made some yarn bowls for the people at Omni that knit. And oh, uh, cool! Yeah, you know, there's quite a few people here that knit. Mm-hmm. And then I've been doing some larger planters for home. And those are great because usually they crack and don't work out, and then it's not a problem where to store them. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of fun. So, do you have to have like a a kiln? Is that the word? Like a really hot oven or something? Yeah, I don't know much about pottery. Yeah, we have an electric kiln, which it goes okay. up to twenty four hundred fifty Fahrenheit or thereabouts. If, uh, if Gus Mueller were here, he'd say you could make a pizza in that really fast. Uh, have you tried that? You would have to be extremely. Careful. <laughs> it might be raw on the inside and and black on the black outside. On the outside, yeah, all right. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I you know I wouldn't recommend cooking food in it because it's because it's, it's a kiln. It's not it, enough. It, well, it's had pottery glaze in it, and there may be a little residual mm. copper that you don't want on your pizza. I'm gonna go with yeah. I don't want that on my. No, pizza. you don't. You know, really. I like pepperoni. I don't like copper. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. So. uh your house has been through some remodeling recently. Have you been able to keep up the pottery, or has it been a little? Uh, well, most recently, the during that. yeah, the garage has been full of furniture and boxes. Mm. It's pretty well cleared out now. So hopefully, by the time you hear this episode, I'll be back out there. Back, yeah. What's what's the verb? Pottering. You'll be potterying. Sure. I don't know. <laughs> we do most stuff on a wheel, so yeah, throwing pots. All right. Well, cool. Uh, I think we'll stop at Pottery. Thanks, Tim. How can people find you on the web? I'm at TJW on the Twitters. Mm. I'd also like to thank our intrepid producer, Mark Bosco. Say hello, Mark. Hello, Mark. And I want to wish everybody a happy holidays. We'll be back January 9th. We're going to take a little break at the end of this month. And I want to thank you for listening. Thank you. News.